let's, uh, let's continue to glorify our Lord together by uh, continuing our study of the minor prophets. If you turn with me, please, to the book of Micah. If you need help finding that, the page number is listed in your worship guide. We'll actually be looking at all seven chapters uh, this morning, so you know I have my work cut out for me. Uh, But I'm excited for the opportunity. Of course, we won't be able to read uh, the entire book together, but it would be good for us to at least read the first verse so you're aware of the historical circumstances surrounding this particular book of the Bible. Micah chapter 1, verse 1. Let me read it for us. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Some grisly news came out of Spokane, Washington uh, this past month that may help orient our hearts to this little-known book of Micah and its intended impact. Here are the facts. A 60-year-old father, John Eisenman, was charged with first-degree murder for tying up his daughter's 20-year-old boyfriend, smashing his skull with a cinder block, stabbing him in the stomach several times, and then putting him in the trunk of the car and dropping him off in an isolated part of North Spokane County. After the homicide... Eisenman abandoned the vehicle, and no one found it for a year. Through a series of inexplicable events into which I will not divulge, the car and the body were eventually found a year later, just a few weeks ago, leading to Eisenman's capture and arrest. As shocking as the story itself uh, may be, what's even more shopping, shocking to me has been the public's Uh, conflicted response. Some naturally are outraged at the murder. I can see it in the faces of many of you as you first listen to this. It's a heinous and and seemingly inexcusable act. But some online have actually applauded the murder as something well justified. I left out some details from the case. You see, While under investigation, detectives learned that Eisenman, before the murder, found out that his juvenile daughter had been allegedly sold to a sex trafficking organization in the Seattle area in October of 2020 for $1,000. And Eisenman said that his daughter's 19-year-old boyfriend may have been the one who was responsible for the sale. He was able to rescue his daughter and get her back to the Spokane area, and shortly after that was when the young man was taken. It was at that point that Eisenman tracked the victim, followed him, kidnapped him, executed him. And the police said that prior to the incident, Eisenman had no recent criminal history or no violent history whatsoever, and thus the favorable comments online. I'm quoting just a few of them here so you can see the other side of the issue. This guy is a hero. How many other daughters did he save other than just his own? Petition for his release, where do I sign, one user said. Another, 
I see nothing wrong here except with the boyfriend selling a woman into slavery. And another said, I see no reason to arrest him. I would do the same for my daughter. How many lives did this man save? Give him a medal. So what say you? What's your uh, instinct in deciding a verdict, assuming that all the facts stated here are true? I mean, anyone with a daughter here could at least imagine a, a sex trafficker deserving a dismal end. Some crimes are so heinous, they're so hateful, that even our justice system has allotted to them the highest price, that of death itself. Yet sometimes, the perpetrators of even the greatest misdeeds deserve a second chance. Maybe when all the evidence is considered, uh, the punishment shouldn't be so harsh. It's in decisions like these where we can learn a little bit about you. Are you in particular, at your core, more characterized by doom or deliverance? In a tricky situation like this, what's your instinct? Is it to throw the book at him? Or is it to give a second chance? An even more important question for us in this very moment is how will God rule? What does God think about Eisenman's actions? More broadly, what would be God's tendency, his divine instinct? Is God more fundamentally a God of doom or a God of deliverance? Your answer here to this question reveals more about you than you could possibly imagine. I agree with A.W. Tozer when he opens his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, with the following. You've heard this before, but listen again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward, or I'll add away from, our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church Always, the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. As we apply the facts of this story from the previous weeks to our thoughts of God, it is this very angst between divine doom and deliverance that prepares us for the overarching message of the book of Micah today. 
like many of the other minor prophets that we've studied up to this point, Micah expresses the message of God toward his people. Of course, you know that. And through his simple prophetic ministry, he exposes God's rulings and and verdicts and decisions, thereby enabling us to understand who God is and what he is like. In fact, the book is especially preoccupied with that question. Micah's name, interestingly, is three words in Hebrew all kind of mushed together. It's me, ka, ya. Who is like God? From the very opening in the first verse, Micah's name throws out this interrogative. What is God like? Who is like God? And in his prophecy, he will give three distinct sections that disclose the divine nature of God. Uh, Each of these sections, these these prophecies, three of them in particular, begin with the word here. That's the way Micah breaks up his book. So in chapter 1, verse 2, he'll say here, and then he's going to give you a prophecy. And then you go over to chapter 3, verse 1, and it's going to say here, and then he's going to give you his prophecy. And then it gets all the way over to chapter 6, verse 1, and it's going to say here. And so through these prophecies, these three distinct prophecies, you will find out, and I will find out, what God is really like. The book even ends with the same question, who is like God? And so we will follow in the text today these three distinct prophecies to find out what God is like. Is he more characterized by doom or by deliverance? Now to help you with this, just for those of you who are taking notes especially. The prophecies are admittedly complex, but I think that they can be simplified by the fact that each of them kind of center around a certain object. Uh, The first prophecy that we see in chapters 1 and 2 centers around catastrophe. That's the key word there. Uh, The second prophecy, which goes to chapters 3 to 5, centers around kingdoms, plural. And then the last one in chapters 6 and 7 Uh, focuses upon a courtroom. So let's look and see what God is like as Micah reveals him through his first prophecy centered on the catastrophe. Now in this first cycle of uh, prophetic uh, paragraph, uh, Israel is threatened with exile on account of their sin. It it sounds like very standard prophetic fare. Uh, They're largely condemned for their rebellion, specifically their crime of cruelty, And yet we find out that in the end that the Lord is willing to gather a remnant for all those who are experienced this judgment. But I want you to notice uh, the the what of this. There is doom, doom. It is is strong to the places of influence. I mean, notice the intense imagery here of inescapable ruin in verses 2 to 5. Here's how it starts off. And and the, the word pictures will blow your mind. So please try to visualize what's going on here. He says, hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord Yahweh is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. Listen to this. And the mountains will melt under him. And the valleys will split open like wax before fire, like waters poured down a steep place, like a waterfall. 
all this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? In these first five verses, you find out that God, at least from his divine perspective, is not happy with the people of God. For those of you who have been part of our study, you know historically that in this particular time, uh, the nation of Israel has been divided into two. Uh, The northern kingdom, called Israel proper, uh, has been especially rebellious to God. The southern kingdom has been a little more faithful, but they have still sinned against God as well. And what Micah does here is he prophesies against them both. He says, you both are up the creek without a paddle. You both have sinned against God in dramatic ways. And what he does is he prophesies total destruction for the nation that God himself has built. You see it. I mean, like when you're talking about God coming down and the mountains melting like wax and judgment pouring like a roaring waterfall, you know that you've got a problem. And then Micah, he does something kind of interesting, at least in my perspective. It's confusing for us because it doesn't translate very well into the English, but when you look at verses uh, 6, excuse me, verses 8 through 16 in particular, that you're going to find out, like, how total this destruction is. And basically what he does in these verses, you can let your eyes scan them, is he does a play on words. So each of these names of these cities uh, means something, and then he's going to use the name of the city against them. Now, I've joked around a few times with our church family about um, Eugene Peterson's The Message, which is a paraphrase. But one of the little-known facts about Peterson is he's a Hebrew scholar. So if he does an idiom or a metaphor, more than likely he knows what he's talking about. I just want to read you a few lines of Peterson's paraphrase to give you an idea of the total destruction that's being depicted in these verses, even though it historically seemed rather Uh, complex to you. He says basically here, don't gossip and tell town. Don't waste your tears in dust field. Roll in the dust. In alarm town, the alarm is sounded. The citizens of Exitburg will never get out alive. Lament, last stand city. There's nothing left in your standing. The villages of bitter town wait in vain for sweet peace. Harsh judgment has come from God and entered peace city. He continues this for several more verses, but that's exactly the play on words that's happening here. Uh, what Micah does is, is so fascinating to me because he takes the names of these villages, any village in uh, Samaria that could have been thought of as with a negative uh, communication, and he turns it against them. I mean, we have these kinds of cities even in our own country. I, I found a few that I thought were interesting. There is one city, maybe you know of it, Accident, Maryland, real place. Another is Bitter End, Tennessee. Uh, Another of this one, I think all of you know, Hell, Michigan. Uh, There is a Hot Coffee, Missouri, or Mississippi, excuse me, Hurt, Virginia, and I'm not kidding, this is real, Knock'em Stiff, Ohio. (laughs) These are real places. So all, all countries have these kind of oddly named cities, and basically what Micah does here is he finds all the oddly named cities that could even portend judgment and says, you're going down. Every city will be disrupted. When we're considering that the overarching theme of this message is this more of doom or deliverance, 
we start out on a heavy note of doom. God is not happy. Uh, Why is it that he is so disturbed? Look in chapter 2. If you want to find out what he's so ticked off about, look at the first few verses of chapter 2. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. You shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. Pause there for a moment. What God is expressing concern over here is the same thing that has been expressed in other Old Testament prophecies. In particular, he is concerned about the people's radical self-interest. He says basically that they sit on their beds and they just dream of ways that they can get ahead at the expense of others. They are consumed with their own personal advancement even if they have to step on other people to get there. Basically, what we have is societal decay. It isn't just the relationship with God that he's concerned about. He's concerned about the horizontal relationship. Uh, That which is normally justified in our American business slogan, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there. It's every man for himself. That type of mindset actually uh, made scientifically plausible by Darwin, who said it's just the survival of the fittest. Everybody's going to be battling for their own place higher up in the food chain. Everybody's just looking to propagate their own line. By reducing us to mere machines, or mere animals, excuse me, not machines, they would be better. So we have now started to live this out in our own culture and society. And what the text is saying is God hates that mindset. Anybody who is all about themselves to the demise and disregard of those around them, God hates it. He will punish it thoroughly. He will absolutely destroy it. Doom to the self-obsessed. What's even more interesting about the people here, this is crazy. This is already happening thousands of years ago. To justify their behavior, They found prophets who supported their lifestyle. These people accumulated for themselves religious types who would validate them in what they believed and practiced. We see this uh, particularly in verses 6 through 11. I want you to notice particularly verse 11. He says, If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. He would be the preacher for this people. So if these people were to go out and to to pick a preacher for themselves, if they were to pick a prophet, they will find a guy that will lie and will say nothing and will say basically free wine and beer. That's the kind of guy they were looking for. He says this is what characterizes uh, their religious experience at this time. I love the way uh, that one put it. He said, You could say that they picked their prophets like people pick their psychics, but not as people pick their bankers or doctors. (laughs) We all are looking for somebody to tell it to us straight with our health and with our money. 
But then when it comes about our personal practices and proclivities, that he's soft. Is that not what Paul prophesied would happen in the latter days, that people would heap to themselves teachers having itching ears? For all the things I may pray about this church growing, we don't have to worry about blowing the doors off too much because the culture will not allow for straight talk and denunciations of sin. You folks here today are the cultural oddity. If you really want to be popular, if we really wanted to explode with growth, we would just say free wine and beer. Everything's okay. God's not disturbed with you. And so the question would be, is God actually going to actively judge these people? Did you know that there are liberal theologians out there who say that God does not actively exercise doom upon individuals? One of them is uh, a famous commentator from the early 20th century. His name was C.H. Dodd. He says in a particular, uh, in his uh, commentary on the book of Romans, uh, that God does not actually exercise wrath, but he just allows us to experience the negative consequences of our actions. So God doesn't actively judge. He just holds his hands back and says, basically, if you put your hand on that burner, you're going to burn. But I want you to look at the text again. We need to understand, is God a God of doom or is God a God of deliverance? There is something that is really clear here that uh, I would like you to notice. It is in chapter 2, in particularly in verse 3, he says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family I am, listen to this, devising disaster. From which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. Now, friends, I don't know what Bible Dodd is reading. I respect his intellectual capacities, but the text is clear. God is the one who is devising the doom upon those who are disobedient to him. So there is some sense in which he is a God of doom. I will tell you, friends, we have the benefit of historical recall. When you look back to the events prophesied in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, they would take place mind-blowingly only 20 to 30 years later when the Assyrian Empire would indeed make its way through these very cities that were prophesied and be destroyed. God's judgment came exactly as it was prophesied. And I say this to you very kindly. I am not your psychic, but I would like to be a spiritual banker or doctor this morning and just tell it to you straight. If you are here and you are not in Christ, he actively orchestrates doom upon those who rebel against him. You will not get away with it. And so repent. Repent. I say that not to be the mean guy, the, the oncologist who warns you of cancer is not mean, he's loving. But the God that's depicted here in Micah is indeed, at least in some sense, a God of doom. He hates disobedience. But what's fascinating, folks, is that this scene of catastrophe doesn't end there. Look at the very uh, last two verses of the chapter. No, no, just like out of the blue. It's like somebody flips a switch with Micah. And notice what he says. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in a fold. 
like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He opens the breach, goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. The king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Oddly, as he's prophesying total doom and destruction, he still holds out hope for a certain group of people within this disobedient and rebellious generation who will experience deliverance at his own hand. He says, I will lead them out like a flock. If they were imprisoned, you think of them being captured by, in this case, the Assyrians or the Babylonians. He says, I will break the wall down. I will lead them out of that which oppresses them. God exercises doom, but we see here that he also exercises a measure of deliverance. And so we have something for which we can rejoice. But we're still trying to answer the question. So based on this first prophecy of catastrophe, what's God like? Well, if I only had chapters 1 and 2 to work by, I think that in my own assessment of God, I'm leaning more toward the doom category. What about you? You see it. But it's not the only prophecy we have to consider. Uh, There's a second one in chapters 3 through 5, and instead of focusing on a prophecy of catastrophe, this one is a prophecy of kingdoms. What you'll see in chapters 3 to 5 are two kingdoms in particular. There's the kingdom of the here and now, dominated by man in chapter 3. And then there's the kingdom of the there and then, ruled by the sovereign Lord in chapters 4 and 5. And what he intentionally does in this next section of prophecy is he contrasts the kingdom of man with the kingdom of God. And and it gives you an accurate depiction of, of whose rule you would rather be under. And again, we're trying to answer the question as we look at these two kingdoms. Is God... More characterized by doom or deliverance? Now, I warn you, I see children in the audience. I'm just, I'm going to read the Bible here. Um, But what happens in the first three verses of the kingdom of man is disturbing. Now, before you read it, I want you to know ahead of time that he is decrying the people for the way that they savagely abuse one another, take advantage of one another. He particularly has in mind rulers, leaders, who use their authority to oppress those under them. And so what he's going to do here is he's going to use some imagery, some hyperbole, and it may make you lose your lunch. Notice how God describes the actions of these people. He says, and I said, hear you heads of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron? Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. And he will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. See how God describes it? He said it's like they're, they're literally feeding on one another. They just consume one another. And he presents it in the most violent way. Friends, we have no right to treat other image bearers as objects of our gratification, aggrandizement, or self-advancement. 
And yet that is the way that many of us have just learned to view the world. Everybody is either a customer or an obstacle. And God says, this is just like cannibalism. People feeding upon one another. It is disgusting. This is how things run, by the way, in the kingdom of man. Notice he's talking to the rulers and the leaders. If you want to persist in this dominant kingdom of the here and now, this is the way things roll. Enjoy it. And you know what the text also prophesies? That in light of this cannibalistic behavior, that you can find once more, look at verses 6 and 7 briefly, that there will be certain money-grubbing preachers who will preach for a prophet and justify this kind of behavior. Look at verse 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets, who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. You will find people who are totally in it for the money, and they will make you feel good about the way that you treat others. And then, by the way, if you don't begin to benefit them, they will then prey upon you and say, judgment's coming if you don't start feeding me by paying me stuff. This sounds just like the prosperity movement in modern day. But what you see is basically chapter 3 is a denunciation of the kingdom of man. It is going to end in total destruction. The leaders are corrupt. They are going down. And look at what happens in verse 12. This is the, the, the ultimate end game uh, for this particular kingdom of man. It says, therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Uh, Zion, uh, the temple, represented the, the center of God's rule. And you know what he's saying? It's going to be in shambles. It's going to be a mess. It's going to be like a condemned house at the end of a country highway. There will be nothing. God will put an end to it. Here's a clear prophecy of doom. Doom for the disobedient. But we still have two more chapters to go in this particular prophecy. Notice how this doom pronounced upon the temple is immediately reversed in the next chapter. Chapter 4, verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills, and the people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And, and he shall judge, notice this, between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Just pause. Notice the imagery. They will take their weapons of destruction and turn them into weapons of construction. This very verse is actually on a statue outside of the United Nations building even today. They hope, as the UN, that they will bring about this kind of peace. But Micah makes it clear, only Yahweh, through his chosen representative, will bring about this kind of peace. There's a day coming where nations will not be at war one another. Notice it says, nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And this is beautiful. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of the hosts has spoken. Paul's there. Just think of the two kingdoms for a second. The cannibalistic kingdom of man and then the beautiful, peaceful, 
safe rule of Yahweh. In fact, his rule is so enticing in this millennial period in which his son will be reigning. Other nations come and they want to be a part of it. The, the, the chapter continues by just continuing to just flaunt, really flaunt, the beauties of God's rule and reign and the deliverance that is promised for all those who pledge their allegiance to Yahweh. When you look at verses 6 through 13, he promises, for example, that he will deliver Zion, his people. They will have total and final victory. When you look over in chapter 5, we have that famous passage about the divine ruler who will bring all this to pass. Let's get you ready for Christmas. Forget Target putting up decorations. Here's something to get you ready for Christmas. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And therefore he shall give them up until that time when she who is in labor has given birth then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. And now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And look at the first part of verse 5. And he shall be their peace. God's coming kingdom is not ruled by any corrupt man, but it's ruled by the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who secures this peace. And I love that last line in verse 5a. He will be their peace. How is it that people will ever beat their swords into plowshares? Because Jesus is ruling. And friends, I'm, I want to get you to see this, please. Where Jesus rules, things are good. There is deliverance. There is victory in this. This is so much better than anything that the kingdom of man could ever come up with. And so, yeah, you see a God of doom in chapter 4. I mean, chapter 3, but in chapters 4 and 5, God is one who delivers through his chosen representative. In verses 7 through 15, it talks about this remnant of people who will be fully and finally purified. It says that God's going to eliminate all capacity for them to ever become idolaters again. He will not only eliminate the enemies, but listen to this, friends, he will eliminate the temptations. We will only be satisfied with him. I like that kingdom. I I personally love the idea of living under that kind of rule. You know, there's been this recent phenomenon in our country, that of uh, leftugees. Have you heard of these? You know, I, there's this pattern that I've noticed in our church ever since January. I don't think a Sunday goes by that I don't meet someone in this church who has moved into the area from what I would consider to be a more liberal or progressive state. California. Minnesota, Michigan, Oregon. It is a regular thing. And places like Florida, Texas, Tennessee are exploding with growth these days. I mean, Forbes magazine wrote about it. They were the ones who, who uh, coined the term leftugee. In fact, there's this real estate company. I'm not kidding. It's called Conservative Move, and this is their tagline. We're moving you to values, prosperity, and safety. This is a real estate company that helps relocate thousands uh, from blue states to red states. And the founder, Paul Cabot, summarizes the experience of moving his family from California to Texas. All right, this is his words. It's like leaving a really bad relationship. When you get out, 
and move to, say, Texas, Florida, uh, the Dakotas, Wyoming, you look back and say, why did I tolerate that abuse for so long? Why was I in that relationship? Life is so much better. Well, there really are greener pastures. I was just in Los Angeles this week, friends, and I'm telling you, it is a different feeling place than the Gulf of Florida. <laughs> I'm obviously betraying a little bit of my uh, political conservative bias. Forgive me. If you're a blue state fan, it's okay. But the point that I'm making is that people will totally uproot their lives to be under the rule and reign, if you will, of a better leader, of what they perceive to be a better leader. You know what Micah is offering to us here? Two kingdoms, two opportunities to pledge our allegiance. One is the kingdom of self in which you can just go in that dog-eat-dog cannibalistic world if you want to and ultimately earn for yourself the doom of a holy God. Or you can pledge allegiance to Yahweh through his chosen ruler representative, our Lord Jesus Christ, and experience, experience the benefits of peace now and peace and prosperity forever to come. Yeah, God is a God of doing, for the disobedient. But he's a God of deliverance for those who depend upon him. So as we assess this second prophecy, I'm thinking, okay, is God more characterized by doom or deliverance? Well, the first one kind of kept me on the doom side of things. This one, admittedly, at least where I am making this assessment this morning, puts me on the deliverance side of things. That, I mean, he got one chapter of doom, two chapters of deliverance. I'm kind of seeing it going the other way. But let's let the final prophecy break the tie, if there is one. This final prophecy, we've looked at the prophecy of catastrophe, the prophecy of the kingdoms, and now let's look at the prophecy of a courtroom. Now, as soon as you hear the word courtroom, you're automatically thinking, I think I know where this is going. But you're going to want to listen really, really carefully. So once more, look at chapter uh, 6, verse 1. You see Micah's key word there, right? Hear what the Lord says. And then he's going to use, in verses 1 to 2, legal language. Friends, this, this verbiage is taken straight from the ancient Near Eastern courtroom. Yeah, I want you to note three things in particular. First, there's a plaintiff. You find out who the plaintiff is in the second half of verse 1. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord. Yahweh is the plaintiff. He's the one that is complaining. He has a charge to bring against his people here. But there's not only a plaintiff, there's also witnesses. Notice he says, plead your case before the mountains, let the hills hear your voice. It says, hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. So who are the witnesses here? He's calling on the mountains, the valleys. Why? Because they're ancient and they're old and they know what's been happening. Now again, it's imagery, but you have a plaintiff, you have witnesses, and then you have a defendant. Who is the defendant? Look at the second half of verse 2. For Yahweh has an indictment against his people. He will contend with Israel. So the people of God are on trial. The plaintiff is Yahweh. The witnesses is the universe. And the defendant is the people of God. Now with this in mind, you naturally will expect some testimony from the plaintiff. What is it that he wants to happen? 
he gives his testimony in verses 3 to 5, and he starts off by reminding his people that he's been good to them. When you let your eyes scan those verses, you find that he reminds them that he's the one that delivered them from the Egyptians. He's the one that delivered them from the threats in that Balaam episode. He's the one that has always looked out for them in a special way. All right, so that's his opening line. And then he adds something else in verses 6 to 8, and this is beautiful. What God is going to say is, I'm not unnecessarily hard to please. So I wanted my people to be faithful to me. And what he's assuming is that they were saying that this was kind of complex. He's kind of hard to please. He's a rough God. But notice verses 6 through 8. They're some of the most popular in the entire book. There's a little bit of sarcasm here. It says, with what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With 10,000 rivers of oils? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Do you notice the irony here? God is making fun of them, saying, like, all right, you really think that I'm just all about sacrifices? Like, if you really wanted to please me, that what you would need is a bunch of newborn calves and ten thousands upon ten thousands of rivers of oil for sacrifice? Is this really what I'm looking for? And then he answers the question in verse 6. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That's all he expects, even the God of the Old Testament. What he primarily wanted was for his people to do justice, that's doing that which is right, under God, with one another, and to exercise loving kindness. The, the loving kindness there is the word for loyalty. Basically, if any of you are in a position of power and you're entrusted with the safety of another individual, the expression of loving kindness or loyalty is when you do your best for those whom you serve, those who are under you. Uh, the easiest example of this is that of a parent. A parent who is just willing to fight for the highest good of their children. That is the covenant loyalty that he's talking about. So there's a horizontal aspect, and then there's this vertical aspect, which we notice in which he says, and to walk humbly with your God. Uh, the word humbly is interesting. Don't want to overturn a translation here, but it might even be better for us to use, I know it's a more difficult word, but it's more accurate, circumspectly, to walk with awareness of your God. What, what particularly is, do they need to be aware of? They need to be aware of how good he's been to them. He graciously led them out. He has delivered them from their oppressors, their would-be persecutors. And so we need to walk with God remembering how kind he's been. And, you know, I love simplification, friends. I just, I think Jesus kind of sums it up with different words when he said, hey, what does God really expect of you? What, what's, what's like their number one thing? What is the priority? Love God, love your neighbor. Is it that hard? Is God really just saying, all right, give me everything you got. Pay it all. He's providing it all. And this sets up the case. So basically, God leaves it like this. Um, I've been kind to you, and I'm not asking for that much. It's pretty simple. And yet, how have they responded? Well, with infidelity to him. When you look at verses 9 through 16, 
He says, you didn't do this. You didn't practice justice. You didn't care for one another. You did your own thing, and you will pay for it. You can see the details of that payment, of that doom, in those closing verses. And then when you look over in chapter 7, uh, particularly uh, in verses 1 through 6, Micah does a lament. He kind of speaks on behalf of the nation, and he talks about how, basically, Israel and Judah have gone to hell in a handbasket. Uh, nobody is living according to covenant faithfulness. Everybody is looking out for their own interest. It's all going down. This is bad. And through the lament, he promises that there will indeed be judgment. There will be doom. The corruption is pervasive, and God will exercise punishment. Look at the second half of verse 6. This is chapter 7, verse 6, second half. A man's enemies are the men of his own household, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Micah distances himself from the people as a whole, saying that there are some who are depending upon God. But notice how things begin to take a positive turn in verse 8. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. Uh, when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light and I shall look upon his vindication. Basically what he's saying here is that, hey, there will be punishment indeed, but in the end God will deliver. The rightful sentence for the disobedience and rebellion is total doom and destruction. And yet even in this courtroom setting, we find that the judge will not only exercise doom, but for some, he will actually exercise deliverance. And the book ends on this high note of total deliverance. I mean, in verses 11 through 13, they're promised ultimate safety. In verses 14 through 17, God promises to eliminate all their enemies. And then... I want you to notice the climactic conclusion. Here's where Micah answers the question for us. Is God more a God of doom or deliverance? What's he like? Verse 18, closing commentary. You ready? Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever. Because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. You want to know what God is really like, Micah says at the end. He alternates admittedly between doom and deliverance and doom and deliverance and doom and deliverance. But he ends with this note. Mikaya, who is like God. And God is the one who pardons. He is the one who loves to forgive. He is the one who has this tendency to take your most disgusting acts of defiance and rebellion and throw them into the deepest see and how did he do this by taking the doom that you and I deserved and thrusting it upon his son who had entered into humanity in that obscure village of Bethlehem and he would satisfy the full and righteous wrath of God, rise again showing that he was God's chosen ruler now offering uh, forgiveness 
and guidance to all who come under him through repentance and faith. This is a God of deliverance. Doomed to the disobedient. Deliverance to the dependent. I love uh, Dane Ortland's book that we gave away here. I don't know, probably more than any other book in my history here. I am um, especially grateful uh, for just that title, Gentle and Lowly. Gentle and Lowly. It's this reminder that uh, God is not who we normally make him out to be. He says this at one point in, in his book, and I just want to read you these lines. I think it's an appropriate close. We'll be done. He says, the Christian life from one angle is the long journey of letting our natural assumption about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. And this is hard work. It takes lots of sermons and a lot of suffering to believe that God's deepest heart is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. The fall in Genesis 3 not only sent us into condemnation and exile, the fall also entrenched in our minds dark thoughts of God, thoughts that are only dug out over multiple exposures to the gospel over many years. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that calls you to go there in the first place and keep you cool toward him in the wake of it. When we see the Lord revealing his truest character to us in Micah 7, 18 to 20, we are seeing the shadow that will one day yield to the shadow caster, Jesus Christ, in the Gospels. If you want to know what God is like, doom, deliverance, look at his incarnate son, Jesus, who took on the doom to provide the deliverance. He is still both, but he is both just right. I have three exhortations for all of you who are here. One, rest afresh in your deliverance from rightful doom. It's a good day today, not just because the weather's nice, but because the wrath has been satisfied. Secondly, Reflect his gracious character in your interactions with the saints. God is fundamentally gracious, and he expects his people to be. If you were to ask somebody, not the nice people, but I'm talking about the ones that tell you like it is, whether they would characterize you more by doom or deliverance, what would they say? heart of God that is to be reflected is gracious. It is loving. It is kind toward his people. He hates the 
self-obsession that causes us just to crawl over top of people to accomplish our own objectives and agendas. Reflect this way for character. Third, there are some here, even now, who may be counterfeit Christians or may have never come to Christ in the first place. This is especially for you. Run to Christ who satisfied the being for all who depend upon him for deliverance. He's not looking for the sacrifice of your firstborn. He doesn't need your money. He wants your allegiance expressed to his son in faith, turning simply from your own horrible way of doing things, trusting in his good way provided by his son. praise you. In all sincerity, we praise you as a righteous, holy God who sends his doom upon the defiant. And you don't just let it go. You are just. You do that which is right. And we are not sorry for that. We rejoice in your righteousness. And yet knowing our own state before you, knowing our own tendency to sin, knowing our our, our frequent failures, our our own uh, proclivities to at times rebel against you, we are so grateful as well that you're a God of deliverance or that you satisfied the doom through the death of your son uh, for all who would believe. And now we enjoy your everlasting grace or we rest in that today and we pray that we would reflect it that we would reflect it powerfully or in our church community, in our families, in our workplaces. Or may we be marked by this expression of godliness. And may even our practice and observance around the Lord's table today further cement in our minds this picture of who you really are. The God of deliverance. The God of grace. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.